Your birth and coming into this life to save us. Lord, we also recognize that You are our God and our King. And we come to praise and magnify You as a body of people. Lord, we lift our voices to You. And we thank You for Your presence. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit. We thank You that You are near and not far away. We love You, Lord. Thank You. Amen. Amen. You'll be seated. Man, thank you guys so much. What a great time of celebration this morning. Let's continue to celebrate. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read God's Word together this morning. We love to celebrate God's Word, His truth, God's all of our lives. And as you are turning there, let me just kind of catch you up and remind you of where we've been in this series that we've called The Music of Christmas. We looked uh, two weeks ago at, uh, at the story of Zechariah who was the father of John the Baptist. And when the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and told him that he would have a child and uh, that even though he and his wife Elizabeth were old, they were going to have a son who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He would go on before the Messiah and the power and the presence of Elijah, the spirit and the power of Elijah, and he would proclaim, make way for the Messiah to come and he would prepare uh, the people of Israel for the Messiah's arrival. Last week, we looked at the story of Mary. And she would be the mother of Jesus, that she was given the assignment to be the mother of God's son. And when she found that news and as she met with Elizabeth, who was the mother of John, and she said, man, who, who am I that you would come and see me? Elizabeth told Mary, why would you come and see me? You're the one carrying the Messiah. And, uh, and Mary began to sing. We call it the Magnificat. It is the, the song of Mary. And she proclaimed God's glory and his majesty and his power, his omniscience and his sovereignty and his will. And she just had this beautiful song that she sang that helped us connect with the heart and the power of God. Today I want us to look at uh, a different kind of song. It's a much shorter song and it's a song that is sung out by angels as the shepherds who are watching over uh, the fields outside of Bethlehem get an angelic choir that comes to them. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 2, starting verse 8. And here's what Luke tells us. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, uh, this being nearby Bethlehem, that Jesus has now been born. It says, now that Jesus has come, there are shepherds who live in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Let me just stop right there for just a second, because I missed the opportunity to say this in the first service. When we saw the video clip a few minutes ago of Charlie Brown, anybody just loved the Charlie Brown Christmas? That is just awesome, isn't it? Have you ever noticed something? I just learned this not too long ago, maybe a year ago. When he stands up to say, uh, and he he stands up to give the Christmas story, and he says, uh, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Have you ever noticed, is it Linus? Linus, have you ever noticed that Linus drops his blanket? You ever noticed that? Go back and watch the story. What is the blanket to Linus? It's his security blanket. It's what he always keeps with him because he's fearful. He always sucks his thumb and he has his blanket. When he starts to tell the story and he says, do not be afraid, watch. He lets his blanket go and he doesn't pick it up the rest of the time. He talks about the birth of the Messiah. And when he's done, he bends over and he grabs his blanket back. And he goes and he tells Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Isn't that powerful? That they intentionally did that where he says, I'm dropping this thing that helps me have my fears because the angels have come to tell us, don't be afraid. God has something for you and you don't have to be afraid. It's powerful. Listen to this next part. The angel said, do not be afraid because Linus told us not to. I will bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, 
peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Uh, let me ask a question this morning. Any shepherds in the room? I know there's at least one wannabe shepherd in the room, but is there any real shepherds in the room? No, I didn't think so. Um, we don't have a lot of sheep around here. There's not a lot that are being raised. And so because that's true, we don't know many shepherds that we get to share much about life with. So we don't know much about the life of a shepherd. We also probably wouldn't be clear to say with, to one another that we don't know much about the life of shepherds in the Bible either, other than they hung out with sheep all the time. Uh, and so here's what we can kind of take in context from knowing about some shepherds this morning. Uh, one of the things that is important for us to know is that being a shepherd was not an exalted position in their, in their government, in their economy. It wasn't something that was valued. In fact, they were most likely looked down on, uh, which is kind of strange because David, who was the greatest king of Israel, was a shepherd. Uh, and yet to be a literal shepherd... Uh, and to be someone who was out in the fields watching over flocks and those kinds of things, it wasn't valued in their society, in the Jewish society. In fact, for, um, for the Pharisees, who were the, the governing rulers of the Jewish people and the religious leaders of the Jewish people, uh, the Pharisees of that time, in the beginning of the New Testament, said that there were six professions that were unworthy for Jewish people to have. One of them was shepherding. And so, and you think about this, you look and say, the, the Pharisees would say to these shepherds, you have a profession that nobody wants, it's not even a worthy profession to have, uh, and yet it's necessary, but for the shepherds, there were several reasons why. Number one is this, that a shepherd was not permitted to give testimony in a court of law. Like, they were so looked down on in this society, that if they saw a crime take place, that somebody would say, well, yeah, but your testimony, it's not valid, it's not worthy, you're a shepherd, nobody trusts you. Second thing is that a shepherd was not allowed to enter a synagogue. Because of the requirements of their job being around sheep and animals, they were perpetually, ceremonially unclean. They could not go and make sacrifices on their own to the temple, to the synagogue, because they were unclean in the Jewish system. Uh, the next thing was this, that it was one of Israel's uh, times in history in Israel when Shepherds were actually looked at and said, if you cause a sin in Numbers, uh, in Numbers chapter, I believe it's chapter 14, in Numbers chapter 14, there was actually one recorded instance where someone sinned in the nation of Israel, and the punishment for their sin was, you have to be a shepherd for the rest of your life. That was how they punished the guy. said, so you will now be a shepherd. Go and be with the sheep. We don't want you in our camp anymore, right? And so you see shepherds, and you start to realize at the time that Luke's writing his gospel in the New Testament, that shepherds were not somebody who anyone aspired to be. That it was usually a family profession. It was somebody that if your father was a shepherd, you probably became a shepherd. But nobody grew up going, I just really want to be a shepherd. Nobody in Israel, because that was such a looked down upon job. In fact, when Jesus was born, we can kind of look and say, you know what? God didn't think that same thing of shepherds. Everybody else might have thought shepherds are unworthy, they're unclean, they have no value. But guess who didn't think that? God didn't think that. So on the night that Jesus was born, who does the angel appear to in the fields? He comes out to the shepherds. He says, hey, I have news for you guys. And can you just imagine an angel just appearing in the middle of a dark field? I mean, it's pitch black night. And an angel shows up and the glory of this angel is out and the, all of the light shining off of him. The angels, uh, the, the gospel says that the, uh, the shepherds were terrified. If you remember the King James Version, it says they were sore afraid. Like they were so afraid, I guess it hurt them. I don't know. Uh, but here you've got these shepherds and they're going, they're terrified at the glory of this angel that shows up. And he says, listen, don't be afraid because God has a message for you. 
And so we see these shepherds, we start to understand that God is not concerned about who they are. In fact, God has a special purpose for these shepherds. In fact, if you ask the question and say, why in the world would God send his angelic messenger to shepherds? Why would he do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons that I want to point out for just a second. Last year, we really looked at this passage and and kind of dove into who these shepherds were. Primarily, we think that these shepherds were in the fields between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are five miles apart. From Bethlehem, you can see the city of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a very small village community, but Jerusalem is large. And from Bethlehem, you can see Jerusalem. On the road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, there's a place called Migdal Adair. It's known as the Watchtower of the flock. It was where the shepherds stood in the fields with their sheep, and there was a watchtower that was there where they would be up in the tower and they could look over the fields and they could watch the sheep to make sure that no animals were coming to harm the sheep and nothing bad was being done. But the significance about Migdal Adair was that these places were where people would come as they were traveling the road into Jerusalem to get the sheep or the lamb that they were going to use for their Passover sacrifices. So the shepherds of Migdal Adair were accustomed to watching sheep seeing if there was any blemish or spot or problem with a sheep or a lamb, and then saying, this lamb is worthy to be used as a sacrifice for your sins for this year when you go to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. You'll have your lamb killed in order to take your sin away for the year in God's sight. So why does God come to these shepherds? They're not just any ordinary shepherds. They're specific shepherds. In fact, there's a song, if you remember, called God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And I want you guys just to sing this with me, and it's going to be kind of an impromptu song time here. Um, so you don't have to stand up or anything, but let's just sing this together. The words are going to be on the screen. Uh, but it kind of goes like this. From God our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. There's a curious line in that song that I've always loved, and it's this, that unto certain shepherds God's message came. See, these weren't ordinary shepherds. They weren't just any random shepherds. They were certain shepherds. They were choice shepherds. These were shepherds that God specifically selected to say, I have a message for humanity, and I want you to be the first people who hear this message. And why is that true? The first reason, I think, is because of what we just talked about, that these were the shepherds who watched the Passover lambs. Who better to inspect the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world than the shepherds of Magdala there who were used to watching Passover lambs. And Jesus, 33 years later, would become the ultimate Passover lamb on our behalf. He would give His life on the cross as a ransom for ours. So these shepherds, these certain shepherds, went to Jesus to inspect Him and say, He's perfect. He's the right one. He's God's Son. The second reason that I believe God chose certain shepherds is because of a prophecy from the book of Ezekiel. If you go back and look at Ezekiel chapter 34, you'll notice some things. But in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, you'll notice that the pastors who are given to lead the church are typically called shepherds or under-shepherds of God's flock. That those of us who lead the church as pastors are called shepherds. Jesus is the lead shepherd. We are under-shepherds. We have responsibility to the flock. In the Old Testament, 
The religious leaders would have been called the shepherds of Israel. The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, they would have been known as the shepherds of God's people. And yet, Ezekiel tells us that the shepherds were not doing their jobs. They weren't leading people to God. In fact, they become very self-centered, self-absorbed leaders, and they were trying to keep people away from God in a personal relationship so that they would follow the leadership of the Pharisees. And so when we see this take place, I want you to read with me Ezekiel chapter 34. And I want you just to see what God says as a prophecy toward the shepherds of Israel. When he says the shepherds, he's not talking about literal shepherds in a field. He's talking about the religious leaders. So read this with me. The word of the Lord came to me, being Ezekiel, came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock, the nation of Israel. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. That would be the nations surrounding Israel. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd. And so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for the flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so God says, listen, you leaders of Israel, you've not been doing your job. So when I send my son into the world, am I going to call the leaders, the shepherds, to come and inspect him? No, because you wouldn't recognize the choice shepherd. You wouldn't recognize the Lamb of God. You've not been doing your job. So who am I going to send to see the son that I've sent into the world? I'm going to send literal shepherds. I'm going to send people who understand what I'm doing in the earth. I'm going to send people who know what it looks like to both be humble and gentle with a lamb and ferocious and fierce as its protector. That's who I want to send. And so God sends his angel to the literal humble shepherds of Israel. And he says, it's not for the religious leaders. It's for you, the humble, the gentle, the kind, the shepherds. You go see my son. The invitation is for you to go and see the lamb that I've provided for the sins of the world. And so we see God doing all of this. And here's what the shepherds would have recognized about Jesus' responsibility, that he would do everything that God chastised 
the rulers, the religious leaders for doing in Ezekiel. So Jesus comes onto the scene and, and He says He will take care of the flock in His care. He'll strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the wounded, bring back strays, protect the defenseless. That would be the role that Jesus would play. That He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the defender and protector of the flock of God. Those of us who follow Jesus are His sheep. And we follow after our chief shepherd. And so He has this role. So the message that the angel brought to the shepherds as he comes to them and says, listen, don't be afraid. I have good news of great joy that will be for all people. Unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's some things we can take from this message from the angels. The first thing is this, and if you're taking notes this morning, just write this down on your fill-in-the-blanks on the outline. The joy of God's announcement of the Savior's birth is for all people. That's the first thing the angel says. There's a message from God, and it's don't be afraid. There's a Savior that has come for all nations. For all people. This is not just a Jewish king. This is not just a Jewish God. This is a God of all the nations. This God, this Savior, this Lamb is for everyone. No one's excluded from this. All the nations and tribes and tongues of the earth have the ability to know and celebrate and honor this God. He's the Lamb that's come. He's for all people. Jew and Gentile alike are given an invitation to respond. And while the news is for all people, there's a response that has to be taken, right? Because you and I can know the story. The news is for you. Jesus has come. You've probably heard this before, even if you haven't been around church your entire life. Around Christmas, we've all heard this story, that Jesus has come to this earth, and that He's come for you. He's available to you. But the Bible says that there's favor for those on whom God's favor rests. There's blessing for those on whom God's favor rests. And the only way God's favor rests on us is not that we know the story, but that we've accepted the story. That we've accepted the object of the story. That Jesus is not just the Lamb of God, He is our Lamb of God. Not to take away just the sins of the world, but to take away our sins. So all of us have to have this invitation to say, there is a God who has come for you. He's the Savior of all mankind, but specifically He is coming for you. You can know that this is a personal relationship that you have with God, but you have to receive it before His favor and blessing eternally falls on you. The favor is there because the invitation has been given, but the blessing can't come until you receive the gift. So we have to take that. Here's the second thing. The Savior is personal. He's for you. Look at verse 11. As the angel talks to the shepherd, he says, Today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He's talking specifically to these shepherds. He's saying, listen guys, here's what you need to know. The Savior has come and He's for you. This is a personal invitation for you to know the Messiah, to go to Him. And the same way that the invitation was personal to the shepherds, it's personal to us too. But it gets even more personable as the angel continues to tell the story. He says, I want you to go into Bethlehem and seek out the child. Here's how you'll find him. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Some of our translations just simply say wrapped in cloths. If you read the King James growing up and memorized it the way that Linus did a few minutes ago, it says swaddling clothes, swaddling cloths. And you'll find him laying in a manger. See, the shepherd's message becomes deeply personable as he talks to the angels, or excuse me, the angels to the shepherds. And here's why. Because if you announce the birth of a king, and you say, I want you to go and I want you to find this king. You're shepherds. Nobody in society likes you. You have no access to anywhere. You can't go to the temple. If you go knock on the door of the palace and say, hey, we heard there was a baby born. Can we come in and see this new king? 
Do you think you're getting anywhere? No. In fact, I doubt they would even have the courage to go and knock on that door. Because they're shepherds. And that's royalty. Why would we go there? But when the angel says, listen, this is a message for you. Here's how you'll know this is for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That sign to the shepherd said a couple of things to them. Number one, this is a humble child from humble beginnings, humble family. Swaddling cloths or these cloths were just simple strips of cloth that would be used to wrap a baby up and to keep it warm. It wasn't anything elegant or nice or or, uh, um, uh, expensive. It was just cloths for this baby. And then second, that he would be laying in a manger. This is a feeding trough for animals. The shepherds would go, we get that. We have feeding troughs all over the place. You're telling me there's a baby in one? We can go to that kid. We're not going to go to the palace where he's in a gold you know, crib. I'm not going to go there. But a manger? And that message is for me. We'll go seek out that child. So the, the shepherds begin to understand this message is personal. And guess what? For us, the same is true. The Son of God that came is personable for you. The signs are for us to recognize that while God is holy and He is set apart from us and He is altogether different from us, when He came to this earth as a child, He wrapped Himself in human flesh to be like us so that we wouldn't say, look, there's a God, we can't go near Him. We would go, there's a man. And He speaks with the power of God. And I want to listen to His voice and I want to know Him and I want to follow Him and I want to be near Him because He's like me. He's wrapped Himself like me. God's come near to us. And His personal invitation to you is draw near to this man, God in human flesh, the child of promise, the one that has been given to us. That's the message that the shepherds say and hear. And then the angels sing. I love what happens next. Luke fills this passage with a rush of adrenaline. In verse 13, as the angel has concluded and said, this is the sign to you, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared. Like this is adrenaline all over the place, right? This is just like Luke going, bam, here it was. Sorry, I scared a couple of you. Here he is. Like the angels just show it suddenly out of nowhere. A heavenly chorus appears with the angel praising God and saying or singing. And I just love this. This is so powerful. And if you get this, I want you to just hear what takes place here. This is really like the world's first flash mob. Right? You ever seen these? If you aren't old enough, you know, or too old to use the internet, here's what a flash mob is. It's one of these things that you're in like a public place, a mall, something like that, and all of a sudden a group of people pre-planned, you don't know it, but they know it, they just start busting out in song and dance and just this crazy party breaks out all around you. This is what's taking place with the angels. And I have to wonder if it was intended, right? Like God sent one angel to Mary, God sent one angel to Zechariah, God sent one angel to the shepherd. But on this night when Jesus was born and the one angel went, I just have to wonder if the rest of the angel choir was back in heaven going, dude, he's down there, he's telling the shepherds, this is crazy, I can't stand it, we got to go, we got to be down there, he's getting this, he got the assignment, but we need to be in this. And they just all suddenly, bam, right, suddenly a flash mob of angels shows up on the scene and goes, you got the message, we're going to sing the song. They go, the angels just start singing. Now here's what I also love. This is so powerful. The Greek word that's used for heavenly host is a word that means heavenly army or celestial bodies. It can include stars. It can include planets. 
It can include comets, celestial bodies. So when Luke says that a, a vast margin of the heavenly host appears, what if Luke is not just talking about angels that show up? I mean, what if a great magnitude of angels fills the entire sky? But Luke is going, there's a bigger picture at play. Look past the angels. Look, there's stars that are singing. The moon is brighter tonight. There are comets that are roaring all across the sky. What if there are just all kinds of things taking place? I mean, the baby that has just been born is the same God who spoke the universe into existence. This said, let there be stars to fill the expanse of the sky, and stars came flying out of his mouth. What if, on the night that Jesus was born, when he cried, galaxies exploded into the expanse of the universe? What if, when Jesus let out moans on his birth night, shooting stars went roaring across the sky? And Luke says, a host of the angelic beings, the galaxy included, was there. What if it's so much bigger than angels showing up? Now, I literally believe the sky was filled with angels, but what if it was so much bigger even than that? Think about the power of the story of God coming to earth. David wrote it this way in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. God's creation is not silent. It speaks out and sings out on His behalf. And we can recognize the glory and the power of God. Now, before we look at the song, it's important to know one bit of information here. In the beginning of Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 2, he said, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. Right? You remember the story and how it begins out? Why does Luke mention Caesar Augustus? It's the only place in Scripture that Caesar Augustus is referenced. Why does he talk about that? And why does he connect it then to the story of the angels singing out? Emperors were seen as gods in the Roman world. And Caesar Augustus was no different. In fact, Caesar Augustus was one of the greatest rulers of the Roman Empire. Under his rule and his reign, there was what was known as the Pax Romanus, the Roman peace. It was said that Caesar Augustus had issued peace across the entire Roman world, that everything was at peace. I guess that kind of depends on which side of the sword you were on, but there was peace. Nonetheless, all things were ruled under Rome's guard. And it was said that Caesar accomplished that. So Caesar, when he would go to places of celebration for his rule and his reign, uh, when he would go to, to temples and to different things, he would hire a choir. Tradition says that there were 40 men that he would pay and hire to come in and sing his praises as the God of Rome. And that his choir sang about his glory as God and his peace that he had brought to earth. Now, with that in view, to a Gentile audience that Luke is writing to, in a first century group of believers who is hearing the story of knowing what Rome is like and knowing that Jesus has come, Luke parallels these two thoughts. And he says, you know Caesar who claims to be God and has armies of, uh, of people, 40 people who sing of His glory and sing of His peace. Now let me introduce you to Jesus who's born. And on the night of His birth, an angelic choir that's innumerable in scope and possibly even the hosts of heaven are singing on His behalf. And what's the song? The angels begin to sing, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. 
See, the song parallels what the Greeks would have known at the time. They're going, this is our God that we worship, and here's what you're saying is your God, and we've got a 40-man band, and you've got an angelic host that shows up to sing for your guy. That's huge, right? And so we've got this parallel, this contrast, and so here's what we need to understand and what we can learn. The message of the music of Christmas is this, and if you're taking notes, just write this down. Christmas is not about us. It's for us. But it's not about us. The angels sing out glory to God in the highest heavens. All glory must be given to Him. He alone is ruler. He alone reigns over everything. He alone has glory given to Him. So glory to God in the highest heavens. And so when we see this, we say everything is about God's glory. But here's the trick. We're self-centered, self-absorbed people. We tend to make everything, our culture, our world, we tend to make everything about us. All of this is about us. Glory to God. Okay, I get that, but I want things to be about me, focus on me. Guys, this is why we come so nonchalantly into worship. This is why we enter places like this and we're not ready to worship the God of the universe. In fact, can, just for a moment, can we have like a little family meeting? Would that be okay with you guys? I'm going to do it whether it's okay with you or not, but I'm just giving you a fair heads up warning here, okay? If you're a guest of ours this morning, here's what you need to understand. I love our church. This is the greatest place. We're so thankful for this church. Love what God's doing here. It's incredible for me to be a part of a place that lets me preach in blue jeans. How cool is that, right? Like, we love the casual atmosphere of this church. We love how warm and welcoming everybody is. But can I just tell you guys something that's been bothering me for a while? I've been here for a little over two years. And if there's one thing that's bothered me for the entire time that we've been here, is this. That our church is so laid back and casual sometimes that we're really late getting to the party when it comes to worship. That a lot of times we walk into this room after the first song's been done, after the announcements have been done, kind of halfway through the next song, and we're just starting to get in, we're just kind of hanging out, we're gathering, we're still shaking hands with people, we're still out in the hall talking, we're still getting our coffee, we're still dropping our kids off. And listen, I get it, I understand. I have two kids that have to get back to children's ministry. Sometimes it's hard to get to where you're supposed to be on time. But let me just tell you something. I bet you every day of the week you find ways to get to work on time regardless of what you have to do with your kids or without, regardless of how much coffee you need to drink in the morning or whatever you need to do, can I just tell you, this is not really a slap on the wrist, this is an encouragement from me to you, that when we come to this place and we are saying, angels are singing about the birth of a child and they're saying glory to God in the highest heavens, and we're coming in and going, yeah, we'll get started whenever I want to. This is for me anyway. What do you got for me today, Pastor? Music better be good. If it's not, I'll probably go find another church next week. You better have something to say that encourages me this week or I'm just might sleep in next Sunday. And we make this whole thing about us in church. Listen to me. This is not about us. What we do when we gather for worship is about God. Glory to God, not glory to me. How selfish and self-centered of me to make worship about me. This is about God. And so we need to be here. This is a place worth being on time for. He is a God worth being on time for. If you got an invitation to meet with the President of the United States, you would show up early for that. We have a weekly invitation, a daily invitation to meet with the God of the universe. Do you take advantage of that? Or do you just, whenever it feels good to you, you'll make time for it. You'll show up whenever you want to. Glory to God. In the highest heavens. This is about Him. It's not about us. And guess what else? When, we come, when it comes to worship, 
This is not a one day a week kind of thing. The pinnacle and the buildup of this celebration, what makes these moments that we're in today so special is what you've done preparing for it all week long in your heart. So when you're spending time in God's Word all week long, when you're spending time in personal prayer all week long, when you're serving the kingdom all week long, and then you come to church and you're like, this is the pinnacle of the expression of my worship with my friends and my family in this place to proclaim glory to God. That's what we're doing here. And it's not about us. Glory to God in the highest heaven. But then there's a second part of the message, and I love this. He says, and. That's the best and in the Bible, I think. Glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth. Peace to men on whom His favor rests. See, because God is all about His glory, while He will not share His glory with another, He does love to give good gifts. He loves it. He is a gift-giving God. He gave us His Son. And so glory to God in the highest heavens and to us, there's something else for you on earth. Peace to men on whom His favor rests. See, God wants us to experience peace. So when we think about this in regards to our celebration of Christmas, here's what we need to know. God won't share His glory with anyone, but He loves to give us gifts. And with the glory of God on display at the birth of Jesus, the angel tells us what He's doing. He's bringing peace on earth. The glory of God, the next point can be outlined is this, the glory of God brings the peace of God. The peace of God always follows the presence of the glory of God. When God comes, Peace always follows. It always exists. It always dwells with us because He is with us and He is the Prince of Peace. Now, I recognize at this time of year specifically, there may not be a whole lot of peace flowing through your life right now. Like, while the angel shows up on the first Christmas and says, Peace on earth, goodwill to men, we have found a way to make Christmas the most chaotic time on earth. It's not peace on earth, it's chaos on earth. There's a thousand parties to go to. There's 150 school presentations to go to. There's more cookie eating contests than you care to count. You have to shop for everybody you haven't even seen in a year. You still got to buy them something, right? And so it's just chaos. And what happens when we start to find chaos is that we start to lose peace. And when our lives are devoid of peace, other things start to fill that void. So what starts to fill our void? Anger. Anybody been angry this week? Trying to find the parking spot? Thanks for your honesty. All right. Trying to find a parking spot in front of your whatever store you're going to shop in? That's some anger-producing time right there. Right? How about some other things? There's pride that comes in. There's distrust. And the ultimate absence of peace is hate. So this week in our Christmas devotional that our church wrote and gave out, Dan Bensing wrote this, and I loved it. He said, During the American Civil War, Henry W. Longfellow wrote the lyrics of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I'm not going to make you sing this one. With heartfelt candor, he wrote this, For hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, in the absence of our peace, hate can creep in. Let me ask you this question. Is that what God desires for you? Does God want your life to be filled with hate and distrust and, and chaos and anger? No, God's made it very clear that He wants our lives filled with His peace. And so when we see this, it's immediately understandable that our sense of a personal relationship with God brings us peace. There's a peace in our initial relationship with God that I have peace because I have a relationship with God, but there's also a bigger picture at play. And that's this, that Jesus will come and He will rule and reign eternally as the Prince of Peace. 
that He is bringing a kingdom to this earth. Caesar's kingdom has perished. Jesus' kingdom will rule and reign forever and forever and forever. And there will be enduring, everlasting peace. And so here's what the Old Testament prophets write and tell us. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. Zechariah says, He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on His shoulders, and He will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to this. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus offers us peace in the here and now. That's true. But He promises us everlasting peace in His eternal kingdom. So here's what we have to understand in our daily life. The gift of God's peace is not a promise of exemption from pain. We need to understand that. Part of our working theology needs to be that God's peace does not protect us from every act of pain or turmoil or storm that life can throw at us. Jesus Himself said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. In me, in Christ, in me, you will know peace, even in times of trouble. I won't remove you from every act of trouble and every act of pain and every storm that life can throw at you. I'm not going to take you out of those or spare you from those. But through those things, you can know I'm with you. And part of my theology as a Christ follower is that it can be in the middle of the pain that God allows me to go through that my life can bring the most glory to Him. Because that's what God is always after. He's always desiring His glory, even through your pain. We don't know what this next year will hold for us. We don't know what this afternoon will hold for us. Some of us could leave this building today and not make it till tomorrow. 2017 might see terrible things for your life. There could be a divorce that hits you. There could be uh, a cancer that you're told you have. There could be death that hits you or somebody that you love dearly. In the middle of all of those things, God has not said, I'm going to spare you from feeling pain. He said, I'll bring peace in your pain. I'll be with you through it all. And your pain will exist if you follow after me through it to bring glory to me. That's what God's after. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to men on whom His favor rests. One of the things that I always think about in regards to this is the story of Job. Job, we believe, is probably the oldest book in the, in the Bible. Job's story starts off helping us know and understand how God works and how we should relate to God. Job has everything. Huge family. Wealth that's probably unimaginable in this day and time. Flocks, buildings, homes, businesses. He has it all. And yet, one by one, those things are taken away. In fact, on one day, God, God allows Satan to strike Job and he loses everything except his life. And his wife. She's going to play a key element in the story later. You're like, why didn't he take his wife? Because she was going to be a thorn that Satan was going to use to afflict Job. And so you see Job and he's lost everything. The second thing that happens is God says, okay, Satan, you can can strike him with his physical body, but you can't kill him. So Satan comes back to Job the second time. 
And Job has boils that cover his body. and He's in tremendous amounts of pain. The Bible says that he's taking broken pots and scraping at his skin to get the boils off. How much misery do you have to be in? And yet Job says in the middle of all of this, Job says, or the Bible says that Job never sinned against God by blaming Him or by saying anything against God. But that wasn't true of Job's wife. Mrs. Job comes along and goes, hey, why don't you just curse God and then die? Just be done with it. And Job refuses to do that. In fact, Job chapter 13, verse 15 says this. Job's response is this. Even though He would slay me, yet I will hope in Him. That's Job's response. Hey, Christian, how would we do in that? That if we would say, if God came against me with everything, if He allowed the worst storm to hit my life in the coming year, I would stand firm in my faith and say, even if He slays me, my hope's still in Him. Because He is the God of all glory. Because He's sovereign, and He's good, and even in the middle of the worst pain I can experience, there is a peace I cannot understand. The Bible says that we can have a peace that passes all understanding. That's what God offers to us. That's the message of Christmas. Glory to God and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. And so here's how I would just ask you to think this morning about your life. How would this apply to you? What about your life? What about your eternal soul? If the worst happens, what offers you peace? What are you banking on to get through the storms of life? What are you hoping in to get you past the worst that life has to offer? Your bank account? Are you depending on the fact that you've got enough money to get the best medical treatment if that needed to be? Or to buy a yacht and go sail away from your problems if that's what you needed to be? Is it your bank account? Is it your morality? Do you say, well, I'm a, basically I'm a good person. I've done enough good things. I'm this great guy. And so my hope for an eternal peace is that I'm going to get to heaven one day and God's going to say, why should you be with me for eternity? And because I was a really good person. Is that what you're banking on? What about, uh, what about your Christian upbringing? You were brought up in a religious family, so your faith is just transferred from your parents to you. You're hoping. Is that what you're hoping for? What about church attendance? Well, I'm here all the time. I come to church every Sunday. Sometimes I'm even on time when I come to church. I'm here. Is that what you're banking on? God would say to us, listen, there's only one thing that's going to offer you peace for eternity. That you can know when the storms of life come against you, there's only one thing that's going to bring real, eternal, lasting peace. And that's the baby that I sent to be born in a manger and wrapped in cloths. And if you don't know Him, then you don't have real peace. You certainly do not have eternal peace. But that's what God wants for you today. And so here's the offer. Today could be the day that you say, I want that. I want that peace. Before you ever leave this place today, you can say, I want to know what a relationship with Jesus looks like that offers that kind of peace. Can I beg you this morning not to leave this building until you've had a conversation with myself or one of our leaders, our elders, somebody you've seen on the stage up here and just say, I need to know that kind of peace. We would love to talk to you about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and lead you into knowing how you can have that faith in Him. So don't leave here today without that. That's our hope for you. Our hope for you is a hope that only God gives. The glory of God shown through peace given to man on whom His favor rests. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I love you and I'm in awe of you. You are good. You are good when we don't deserve it. You are powerful and you express yourself in ways that we can't fathom or comprehend. To think about the night sky being filled with a host of angel choir and the heavens above displaying the glory of God. God, who am I? Who am I to be worthy of a relationship with a God like you? But I'm so grateful, Father, that you offer it. That you give us hope in this life and hope for our future and eternity because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we love you, God. And I pray that today there will be people, even in this room, who will say, I want to know this Jesus. I want the peace he offers. And that they will refuse to leave here today without nailing down that relationship. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask in these moments that you would convict us and draw people to yourself for salvation. We ask in your name.